Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. I want to do several different things in today's episode. Uh, the first thing that I need to do is to send out a big thank you to all of the patrons who are supporting this show. They are people who have gone to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird and have signed up to make a little contribution. So I just want to rattle off the names. I haven't done it in a while. And I think it's good to recognize those people who are making this happen. I'm not going to use any last names. Uh, you know, if any of them would like their last names read, I'm happy to do that, but I won't do it unless, you know, somebody tells me, go ahead. Just want to rattle them off. And before I do, let me say $2 is helpful. Five is helpful. 10 is, it, it doesn't matter to me what you do. Do what you feel like. Do what is within, you know, I don't want to hurt you in, in any way. But this support really helps. And once you've become a patron of the show, I occasionally put up some extra content over there just for the patrons. So you would be in that little exclusive club. So want to say thanks to Ben, Brandon, Charlie, Craig, DJ, Drew, Frank, Fred, Gina, Lee, Lori, Mark, Mike, Pat, and I've said Pat Span's last name multiple times, so Pat Span, and Tom C and Tom K. We have to we have two Toms now, and I especially want to say an extra thanks to Tom C. And you know what I'm talking about. I really appreciate that, Tom. All of you are really helping make this uh, possible for the long term. So, won't talk any more about that. Just saying thanks to the patrons. The next thing I want to do is something that I... It's sort of related to the patrons. Um, one of the patrons, Gina, sent me an email. Uh, you know, has we've written back and forth a few times. Just basic questions and comments and... I think it all started with, you know, a little thanks for doing the podcast type of email. This morning, I haven't gone back and looked through them all. But she sent me an email, and I just want to read it to you. I'm pretty much going to go verbatim because I think her story, let's put it this way. Her story inspired me to continue, to keep doing this. When I hear something like this, it's proof to me that, you know, some of this information and, you know, what I'm putting out there is of some use to someone. And I don't hear from most people. And that, that's okay. But I heard from Gina, and you just heard me mention her name on the list of, of patrons. Anyway, she sends me this email, and I'm just going to read it to you. Hi, Brad. Thanks for posting the pics of your new America's Jam, which, by the way, I posted those on the, the patron page. 
Patreon page, which you can go look at those pictures there at public post. Looks good and a good size without having too many people to be fun. I have taken your advice to break out of my isolation and play with others despite my still beginner status. As I mentioned, and she, you won't know what she's talking about here, but she told me that she went to basically a workshop. It was a master class jam with Mike Marshall, Tony Trishka, some other people. She went to this thing. And so she's talking about here. That's what she's referring to. And she said, um, this event was my first such experience. Tough act to follow, but it was a good motivator. And then she goes on. Next, I found a small jam down the road in Petaluma that meets once a month in a cafe. They welcomed me and I found I could chop rhythm well enough to keep up with them. I even called the tune and took a, took breaks a couple of times. Then, best of all, I met a guy through Mandolin Cafe, Bob Ayers, a.k.a. Ranger Bob. He wanted to jam, so we started a little private invitation-only session here at my place. He brought his guitar and a guy named Robbie who said he plays some fiddle. Robbie opened his case, but in addition to his fiddle was a stunning 1920 Gibson F4 with a reddish finish and oval hole. It had that old-time dry tone that I just love. Robbie said he saw it in a shop in L.A. some years back, but he didn't know mandolins and wasn't sure if it was a keeper. So, he called David Grisman right then and asked him about it. Grisman told him to pick one note on it for him over the phone, so Robbie did. Grisman shouted, buy it, and the sale was made. How did Robbie know Grisman? It turns out Robbie was, David, was Grisman Quartet's manager for a time in the late 70s, early 80s. Then I asked Robbie his last name, and he said what sounded like green. I asked him how he spells it. And he said, G-R-E-E-N-E. -E -E. The light went off in my head. Turns out he's the brother of Richard Green, legendary fiddler and bluegrass boy. How cool is that? So the three of us now have the nucleus of a little jam group of our own, which is starting to be more like a semi-band situation since we are starting to focus on a certain list of agreed-upon tunes to prepare ahead of time so that we can make better music instead of just winging it the way things usually happen at jams. So, thanks for pushing me out into the social world of bluegrass. All the best, Gina. Thanks, Gina. I appreciate the story. That is, um, those are the sort of wonderful surprises that you find in bluegrass. I uh, played did quite a few jams around the Atlanta area and bumped into a guy many times. I got to know this guy very well. I had no idea. I had never heard that he played fiddle. He was a bluegrass boy for, I don't know, fairly short period of time, as were many bluegrass boys. I had no idea that this guy that I knew and that I picked with on a pretty regular basis 
And I think he even filled in with our band a couple of times. I had no idea that he was an actual bluegrass boy. And that, you know, that's the kind of thing you're going to run into and you have just run into it. It's perfect evidence for what I say all the time. And that is you can't do bluegrass sitting at home on your couch unless you can get them to come to your house, which it sounds like that's what you've been able to do. So that is uh, three cheers for Gina, everybody. Yay! Do like Gina. All right, now I just want to recount a little bit of what I did this past weekend. And it is more evidence of the fact that you can't do bluegrass sitting around the house. So here's what we did. If you remember back, if you've been listening to the podcast a while, I did an episode called Picker's Paradise. And I basically reviewed my trip to that to that particular bluegrass festival. Well, that's where Jackson and I went this past weekend. We didn't have time to take off and go down there on Friday because he had school and there wasn't time to get packed and get down there on Friday. So we got up Saturday morning, Jackson and I, and loaded the car with a tent, a couple of air mattresses, sleeping bags, pillows, cooler, box full of food, all those essential food items that guys like me and Jackson would need at a festival, such as chips, cookies, um, Vienna sausages, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, they have very good um, on-site food vendors down there, so we knew we could get a hamburger when the time came. We loaded that car, and I'm telling you what, it looked like a sardine can. That little Ford Fiesta. I, had to, I told you a few episodes ago I had to switch cars. The old uh, Matrix has, uh, <laughs> it needs some work, and I, I am working on it. But the Matrix had a trailer hitch, and I would carry the little trailer. And oftentimes we slept in that trailer. I think I talked about that in one of the episodes. The Lemonade Camper. Um, basically a four by six utility trailer turned into a camper. So this car does not have a trailer hitch yet. It will, it will, and it will be pulling that little trailer eventually. I just haven't had long enough to uh, get around to putting a hitch on it yet, but I will. So we had to pack it all in that tiny little car. There was barely room for Jackson and I to squeeze in. So we take off on Saturday morning and we're going to go down there and we're going to hang out all day and we're going to listen to the bands. We're going to jam. He's going to play, fish in the pond, run around with the other kids, basically do whatever, <laughs> whatever he wants to do and uh, spend the night down there and then come back Sunday morning. So that's what we did. And Mom stayed home because sometimes, perhaps wisely so, uh, moms need a little space <laughs> of their own. You know, she said, no, nah, I'm just going to uh, stay home and maybe straighten up the house a little bit. And I may go look at a rug, <laughs> go buy a rug for the front room. So that's what she did. So she got some peace and quiet and Jackson and I took off and went to the uh, Picker's Paradise 
uh, I think, what do they call it? Great, I don't even remember what they call the festival. I think it's called the Great Southeast Music Festival or something like that. But I always just think of it as Pickers Paradise, which it is. It's a, it's a beautiful little park. Not going to review the whole, whole festival here, but I will tell you this, that on the way out of town, uh, one rule I typically have for a bluegrass festival is that we have to stop at Kentucky Fried Chicken on the way and get a bucket of chicken. If you go back and listen, I think it was uh, a very early episode of mine, maybe around number nine or ten, and it was called Bill Monroe and Other Tales. And I talked about, you know, the, the first few times that I saw Monroe perform. And I mentioned the very first bluegrass festival that I ever attended, which was 1977, August of 77, the 11 Alive Bluegrass Festival. And me and my friend Greg Harper went. And the only thing that we took with us was a six-pack and a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And see, Kentucky, see, that's the key word. Bill Monroe being from Kentucky, and it is the bluegrass state. I think it's obligatory that you eat Kentucky Fried Chicken when you go to bluegrass festivals. Plus, I don't know if you know this, but Colonel Sanders, um, being, of course, from Kentucky, he actually had a mandolin band or organized a mandolin band. Uh, there was, I was down in Phoenix City, Alabama, not too long ago, just a few months ago, and was in the restaurant, because, of course, if we see a Kentucky Fried Chicken, we have to stop. So we're in there eating our chicken, and I look up on the wall right beside the booth that we are sitting in, and on the wall, framed, is a 33 and a third record album jacket. Maybe the record was in it. I don't know. I didn't tear it off the wall to find out. I would have liked to, but I would have liked to have read the back of that record. I would have liked to have taken that record home. But it was Colonel Sanders' mandolin band. And it had a photograph on the front of the colonel standing there with a group of about probably maybe 12 or 14 kids and all the kids were dressed sort of like Colonel Sanders with the string ties and stuff you know white shirts and string ties and they're all holding in playing position mandolins and I'm like this is the coolest thing I've ever seen a mandolin band I don't know anything about the history of that if any of you have that record I want that record I want that record. That's just, I'll put that right next to my, uh, my eight track tape of Slim Whitman. You know, it's just one of those things that needs to go in the Brad Laird Museum. Um, I had heard of this thing. Somebody posted um, a picture of that album one time on Madeline Cafe. I knew it existed, but I'd never actually laid eyes on the, the thing itself. Maybe they sold them, at, you know, in the uh, restaurants. I don't know. But I would sure love to get my hands on a copy of that record. But it's pretty cool. There he is, uh, you know, the colonel from Kentucky, and he's got a mandolin band. That's pretty cool. And I, you may have seen this. I've seen on the Internet before uh, a photograph of uh, 
Colonel Sanders shaking hands with Bill Monroe. And I don't know the circumstances, you know, it could have been that, you know, they were playing a festival in Kentucky. I, I don't know. But I have seen a posed photograph of the two of them, you know, shaking hands or something. And I met Colonel Sanders one time. It was between, I was in between the sixth and the seventh grade. And a friend of mine, my best friend from, from grade school, a guy named Chuck Jackson, whose father, by the way, um, I didn't know this when I was in the sixth grade. I found this out, you know, eight or, eight or nine years later. Uh, Chuck's father uh, was the organizer and promoter of the LJ Bluegrass Festival. I didn't know that back then when I was a kid. I didn't even know what bluegrass was. But Chuck, his son, we we were best buddies in in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, that kind of thing. And my mother took Chuck and I to Six Flags over Georgia one summer day, um, weekday, probably like a Tuesday or something, and dropped us off just let us out of the car at the entrance to Six Flags over Georgia there in Marietta, Georgia. Dropped us off for the whole day. And just, I'll, you know, be back to pick you up at five o'clock. And in we went, riding all the rides and all that kind of stuff. And one of the rides, it was one of these, it was called the Georgia Satellite, which I, I later thought, I wonder if that band, the Georgia Satellites, named themselves after that ride. But it was sort of this crazy ride you got on, and it was this spinning disc with all these little seating compartments that all spun around. And basically it was designed to get you super dizzy and turn you upside down and all this. So we're riding that thing. And when we come off, you know, you're staggering and stumbling and laughing and everything. And we come off the ride, and then you have to go through these little gate, you know, the exit from the ride. And we're coming off, and as my vision is sort of coming back, standing right in front of me is Colonel Sanders with a little group of people around him, like a little entourage. There he is, white suit, got the string tie on, you know, those same ties that uh, Flatten Scruggs sometimes wore and posed in, you know, the uh, that sort of uh, Southern planter style look, you know. Um, and sure enough, I mean, we come out of that line, and he's standing right there, three feet in front of me. He's looking at, it just taking a little tour, I guess, of Six Flags. You know, maybe he was, uh, you know, they were trying to get the concession to uh, have chicken in there. So I don't know. I don't know what the circumstances are. I have no idea. It was just kind of weird as a kid to, you know, come running down the ramp off of this ride and come out the gate and look up. And right in front of you is Colonel Sanders. Shook hands with him. And uh, I think maybe they gave us a little button or something, like a little Kentucky Fried Chicken button you could wear or something. Or it might have been, you know, um, I don't remember. Some Something. There was my, my one meeting with uh, the great Colonel Sanders. And uh, God love Colonel Sanders. Uh, they do have the best chicken. In the world, uh, of course, you know, you have to get the original recipe. None of that extra crispy stuff. 
it doesn't hold up at a bluegrass festival. But uh, that's required eating at any bluegrass festival is to take that bucket of chicken. So we went down there. They had, um, you know, a couple of good bands, uh, which I spent very little time down at the stage. Um, Amanda Cook and her band was there. We watched them warming up backstage, just hanging around, standing there. And man, do I love to hear a good band off stage without the PA, where they're just standing in a little circle, running through some of their stuff. Man, it always sounds so good. I mean, the stage sound is different. It's just, I mean, it's amazing. It's like having them in your kitchen, you know. I do love that just pure acoustic sound without going through a PA. They sounded great on stage, too, by the way. She's a wonderful singer. The band's tight, a bunch of hot young pickers, you know. And uh, Edgar Loudermilk was down there. He's a bass player. He's got a band. He was down there, and, and some other good bands, too. But like I said, I didn't hang around much at the stage. We'd wander down there once in a while to get an ice cream cone or, you know, get a cheeseburger or something. Jackson, um, you know, made a friend pretty quick. And luckily, this kid that was camped next to us, there were two bicycles parked out in front of their tent, but there was only one kid. <laughs> well, he brought an extra one in case another kid wanted to ride. Well, Jackson was that other kid. And they rode bikes and they, Jackson was so filthy. His feet were black just from the dust and dirt. He had a great time. He conked out at about 9.30 p.m. He was so tired and wore out. And uh, I picked, I, I didn't pick super late, but I found some really good pickers to play with who I'd played with down there before. And I, I bumped into a guy down near the stage that had a display of R.Q. Jones' resonator guitars and I always heard about those and I was kind of eyeballing them because now you know I've got the dobro bug uh you know taking a look at them and stuff and so I'm picking up there that evening with with these guys didn't realize it was the same people and uh, a guy sitting there says he, he had an RQ Jones hat on and I looked at him and I said were you down there at that booth down there, you know, with those R.Q. Jones Rezo guitars? Which, by the way, those are really highly thought of. Um, you get talking to Dobro players, they talk about those Dobros a lot. Even guys like Jerry Douglas, you know. Pretty, uh, pretty well-known Dobro manufacturer. I think he's from out in Oklahoma. But me, I, you know, I don't know anything about the R.Q. Jones other than I've heard of it. And so the guy's got the hat on. I said, you wouldn't happen to be R.Q. Jones, would you? He said, no. And he pointed to this other guy across the jam session who also had an R.Q. Jones hat on. He said, that's R.Q. Jones. I'm like, no kidding. I thought his name was Billy. <laughs> he says, well, oh, his name is Billy. That's not actually R.Q. Jones, but he now owns the company. I'm like, no kidding. What's the story? So I get to talking to the, to this guy, Billy, who was playing the banjo. Good banjo player. We, we played all kind of Bill Monroe instrumentals. And, you know, it's, 
you don't often run into banjo players who suggest those tunes. And that little jam, I'll come back to the R.Q. Jones thing in a minute. That little jam was just wonderful. I didn't leave it. I didn't wander around. There were other friends of mine there that I didn't even know were there because I was having so much fun picking with these guys that I didn't wander. I didn't wander around. Didn't even find some of my old buddies that I've, that I've, I completely missed them. People like Tom Bobbitt. I didn't even know he was there. Didn't know it. Anyway, this jam was perfect. There were three mandolins, one guitar, one banjo, one fiddle, and me on the bass. I was in heaven. It was just perfect. That is exactly what I wanted to hear. And we did stuff like Southern Flavor, uh, Lonesome Moonlight Waltz, some and some other kind of obscure Monroe tunes, plus a bunch of other stuff. And one of the things I wanted to tell y'all is I think it was two years ago. Go back to the Picker's Paradise uh, episode. Same festival. It's funny how you see the same people. I picked with those same people down there the first time I went to that festival. And there was a kid sitting there, sitting right beside me. I think I was playing dobro. And right beside me was this kid. Had his kind of cheap mandolin, like a rogue or something like that. And he knew these two-finger chords, and he was kind of strumming it like a guitar and kind of making a lot of racket and stuff. And I was thinking, well, the kid just, you know, he don't know what, he, he doesn't know what to do, and that's all he can do. I'm not going to, you know, burst his bubble or anything. But some of the other pickers were kind of looking at him like, I wish he'd quit beating on that mandolin like that. And so after a little while, I thought, you know what? Hey, kid, come here. And I, I took the kid and I walked him around the corner of the RV. I said, hey, let me show you something. I played mandolin for years. Let me show you, you know, basically what an offbeat chop is. Can I, can I borrow your mandolin? He hands me the mandolin. I said, now, you could hear them picking around the corner of the RV. I said, listen in on that bass. You hear that bass? Boom, 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 boom. You put your chord in right in between those notes. So it's boom, chick. And then I showed him how to make a little, you know, a chop chord formation, you know, how to, how to form the basic little chop chord and how to hit that offbeat. And I said, now here, you try it, try it back over here first. So we're standing around the back of the RV. He's chopping, he's chopping, man, it's, now I said, now that's, that's good. They'll quit giving you the evil eye if you come around, come back in here and I do that. Okay, so he came back and sat down, and for the rest of that session, he kept practicing that chop, and he was sounding pretty good. Well, this is what's interesting. So here it is, I think, two years later. I'm standing in that jam. They got two mandolin players, two adult guys. Uh, one of the guys was from Austria, and uh, anyway, got two pretty good mandolin players, fiddle player, banjo player, guitar player, me on bass, and this kid walks up same kid he's now about two feet taller you know he's grown he's like six foot tall now i don't know how old he is I'm, i would if i had to take a guess i'd probably say about 16 17 maybe maybe a little younger now i don't know they grow them tall now uh and they grow fast anyway the kid comes around i didn't recognize him at first because he was kind of tall and he's he just kind of came into that jam and started playing I'm like, that kid's pretty good. His rhythm is just 
good, you know. And he's taking some breaks on some stuff and sounding pretty, pretty darn good. And I was like, hey, aren't you that same kid? Do you remember? Do you remember that night? It was like, like not the last festival, but the one before. Do you remember that night? And I, I pulled you around there and I showed you that how to do the chop chord. Do you remember that? He's like, yeah, I remember that. I said, well, I'll tell you what, you're sounding good. And then I said, show me this new mandolin you've got. Because I really hadn't spotted the mandolin yet. He had some sort of an A style, and I thought, man, this is a good sound of mandolin he's got there. And I said, so you got yourself a new mandolin, too. That thing sounds really good. What have you got? And he turns around. He says, it's the same one. It's, it's the Rogue. It's, it's that same Rogue I had. And I was floored because that rogue did not sound very good the first time I heard him playing it. And I told him, I said, you know what, right there, that's proof that what you're doing, you're doing the right thing because you're playing the same instrument, but you sound 10 times as good as the last time I saw you. So it's clearly you, not the instrument. So keep that in mind, folks. You know, I'd like to hear David Grisman uh, play a rogue mandolin. I'll bet it'd sound pretty good. Might not sound as good as a lore, but you know what I mean. Not the lore. A lore. God, I hate that. I hate that. <laughs> now i got to go down that rabbit hole right now. I would like to now uh, close this episode by presenting a question that I want you to ponder. Because I've been pondering it lately. And I was going to do a podcast about this topic, but I've decided I'm not sure exactly what I think yet and that I'm going to save it. So I just want to tell you the basic idea and get you to think about it. But before I do that, let me remind everyone, the last bonus episode that I put out was an open invitation for you, the listener, to record your own Grass Talk Radio podcast and talk for 30 to 45 minutes about your perspective and your ideas about bluegrass and so on and so on, go back and listen to the last bonus episode. I can't remember if it's number six or, or seven. It's titled Strike While the Iron is Hot. There's still time. Contact me. Send me an email, brad at bradleylaird.com. Put in the subject line something like, I'd like to do the podcast. Put it in there. Send it before October the 15th, 2019. And I'll, well, just listen to the bonus episode. It explains the whole thing. I'm just giving you an extra little push. Uh, I have had uh, three, three people have contacted me. I don't have any finished recordings yet, so... If you're one of those uh, who are doing this, uh, let's get on it. Uh, I want to I want to do this while people still remember that you know that I threw this out. Uh, anyway, you still have a chance to get in on this first round of Grass Talk Radio starring you. So do that now. Let me go to the final topic, which is this question, and. Uh, this came about because I was um, I was reading some forum posts on Banjo Hangout. I love Banjo Hangout. I don't get in there and post that much. 
But I saw a good example last week of something that I've seen hundreds of times over the years since the internet and forum postings ever came about. When that started, you really saw it a lot. And basically, somebody comes on there and posts a question, just a real basic question. And it was something like, should I adjust, you know, my banjo is sounding good. Should I check the, my coordinator rods inside the banjo? Should I check the coordinator rods? And the very first reply to his post was a one-word answer. No. And I thought, oh, man. What kind of answer is that? No. <laughs> and then the next guy comes in and he's like, well, you might want to. You know, uh, you know, if if there's nothing wrong with the sound, you know, you could check the tightness of the bolts and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you might not want to actually monkey with it if, if it ain't fixed. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And then another person comes on and he's like, yeah, like what the first guy said. No. You know, it's like, so you're getting conflicting answers. And this, so that got me thinking about questions and answers. And so let me lay this out to you. You think on this a little while. Because I'm going to be thinking about it. And that is, when you ask someone a question, like, mm, let's say the question is, is it raining outside? Let's say I, I ask my son that. Son, is it raining outside? And he says, no, Dad, it's not raining outside. Well, how do I, even though he's given me the answer, how do I know if it's raining outside or not? I still don't know. I only know what he told me. So the guy says, should I adjust my, should I check my coordinator rods? And the guy says, no. Well, if he walked away at that point, he's just thinking, I don't need to check my coordinator rods. That's the end of that. I have the answer. All you've gotten is an answer. You don't, that's not necessarily the truth. It could have been raining outside when I asked my son, is it raining? And maybe he didn't even bother to look out the window. You follow me? Or maybe he went to the window, looked out, and it was in fact raining. And then he said, yeah, dad, it's raining outside. I'm like, okay, thanks, son. But I still don't know. I still don't know. I'm, I'm trusting the answer. I still don't know until I go look out the window. You get where I'm going with this? Here's the thing. See, if you, if you don't know the answer to the question, how can you have any faith in the answer that you were given? But if you ask a question and you already know the answer, well, then you immediately know if they're telling the truth or not. Like, if I look out the window and I'd see it's raining, I could see rain coming down, and I ask my son, hey, Jackson, is it raining outside? And he says, no. Well, I know he's wrong because I just saw it myself. I already know the answer. And that's the weird thing about a question. When you ask the question, you either already know the answer or you don't. 
So a student might come to me and say, how do, I, how do you make a B minor chord? He doesn't know. And I tell him. But guess what? He still doesn't know. Because I might be wrong. Or I might be lying. <laughs> or I might be telling the truth. You don't know because you don't know the answer. You have to know the answer in order to know whether the answer you were given is true. You see what I mean? But if you already know, you don't need to ask. It's a paradox. It's a weird paradox. So how do you figure out what's true and what isn't true? Asking questions, I think maybe the answer is, Asking questions is just the gathering of opinions, but you're still going to have to do a little, little more research to determine whether or not the answer is true. And then when you do that, turns out you didn't need to ask after all because you could have just bypassed asking, asking the question and gone straight to researching it yourself and finding out the truth for yourself. You follow where I'm going with this? It's, it's kind of a weird paradox. It's like questions are meaningless, you know, if you don't know, how you gonna how how do you know? If you don't know, how do you know what they're telling you is true? As you can see, I've not fully fleshed this idea out and found a way to tie it directly to bluegrass. But anyway, that's just what I've been thinking about. So um, maybe you'll do a little thinking on that too, and perhaps I will come back in a later episode and talk about this thing about questions and answers and seeking the truth in, in uh, getting real, truthful, factual information. I, you know, my, my first guess is that probably the best thing is that when someone gives you an answer, if you cannot determine whether or not the answer is true or false, then I think the place you look is, well, who is this telling me? And what are their credentials? What is their credibility? What is their experience level? How likely is it that this person answering my question, how likely is it that they are correct or not misleading me or accurate? You, you know, you get what I'm saying? So if you ask a, you know, a known chronic liar, ask them a question, you're not going to believe anything they say because you know their reputation. But if their reputation is one for honesty and factual information that everything else they ever told you and you checked it out, it proved to be true. And that, that's the difficulty with these forums. Um, you, you may know the person and you may have read hundreds of their forum posts and you go, you know, maybe what I'm saying is that guy that just flat out said no, those two people may actually kind of know each other. And the questioner may completely trust the validity of that no answer. And the no answer could be the correct answer in that case. But it's just not obvious on its face. So I suppose, you know, if you can't go check it out for yourself, you can at least check out what is the likelihood that the person telling you is telling you the truth. Do they have any reason to lie? Do they, are they likely to be mistaken? Like if I, if I go up on the street corner and I ask some random person, how tight should I tighten my banjo head? Well, if the guy has never played a banjo, never even maybe even seen a banjo, and he says, well, you know, I'd, I'd get it pretty tight. Or well, maybe that's a bad, bad example. Um, 
but I wouldn't be able to trust that person's information. But if I ask Bela Fleck or Sonny Osborne, you know, I think I could probably trust that just based upon, you know, their history and credibility and so on. I may not actually do an episode on this, but I, it was just an interesting question that I've been pondering that if you already know the answer, you don't need to ask. And if you don't know the answer, how do you know if the answer you got is true? Kind of interesting. Anyway, y'all take care and uh, get those emails coming in if you want to do a podcast. And I will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.